Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> Listeners, um, I am Will, your political host, and I'm joined by Pastor Josh, your faithful host. And today we are joined by um, two of the most trustworthy people in the news industry. <laughs> so, um, Julie Mason is uh, the daily host on Sirius X and POTUS channel for almost a decade. She now has a morning show called Julie Mason Mornings, um, and she has interviewed tons of really, really popular and unpopular political figures all along the Beltway and has uh, 30 years of experience covering local, state, and national politics. Um, Olivier Knox is the Washington Post political correspondent and anchor of The Daily 202. He's also the former president of the White House Correspondent Association and has covered six presidential campaigns. So he's obviously has a really, really deep knowledge of the inner workings of Capitol Hill and White House. So thank you guys for being here today. Oh, it's a pleasure. My pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Um, you know, I was um, I was telling uh, Julie just a little while ago that her her style and her um, ability to kind of like capture the essence of of like journalist and just sort of the world of of media is is hands down probably one of the best that I've ever listened to mainly listen to since you're on serious. Uh, but, but like, it's, it's really sort of like changed my viewpoint of how I consume media and how I encourage other people to consume media. So I'm, I, I'll, I'll just kind of start off by asking um, you, Julie, like, like what, what got you into the business um, of journalism and news and what have you? Uh, my mother always wanted to be a journalist, but she was born in the 1920s when those kinds of opportunities weren't there for women. So when I was growing up, she always impressed on me that it would be a good job, a fun way to live, like an exciting life. Um, all my brothers and sisters all went into like, you know, banking and stuff like that. So I was kind of like the last hope. And, but it, it really clicked with me. It was, I never considered doing anything else. Hmm. What about you, Olivia? What what got you into uh, the the world of journalism? My uh, <clears throat> my second year in graduate school, I was at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, and there was an uh, an ad posted. the um, The U.S. correspondent for the news, French newspaper Le Figaro was hiring an assistant, and he was offering uh, twelve hundred bucks a month. Um, and so, I'm probably the only person you're ever going to meet who went into print journalism for the money. <laughs> <laughs> And and how how many years ago what what was that was that uh, ninety six what, what is twelve ninety six oh wow so twelve hundred bucks years ago. <laughs> yes I mean yes can you tell twelve hundred dollars in ninety in ninety six is like probably close to a, a million, million today yeah. it was he paid he paid I mean he paid extremely well um, and the work wasn't that difficult and and a few months in I thought to myself I, I hadn't picked a a, a vocation in a a few months into it, I thought to myself, I could do this job better than he can. Mm-hmm. Why, why don't I, why don't I give this a shot? And, um, yeah. and I, I sent out resumes everywhere. And the first, 
people to respond were the good folks at Agence France Presse, which is where I spent my first 15 years. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a that's pretty cool. Now, now, I, I guess maybe the follow up question is like, why why are you guys still in the business? Oh, I that- love it. Yeah, I <laughs> love it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Uh, I, I loved every, I mean, there were some bad years, but for the most part, when I look back on my career covering local politics and then state and national and then going to the White House and then moving to radio, like every step was fascinating and fun and hilarious and adventurous. And it was incredibly stimulating and challenging and heartbreaking and tough, but it's just been great. Hmm. Wow. What about you, Olivier? Why, why, why do you keep doing the things that, that you do? Uh, I find it incredibly rewarding on on every level. I mean, I find the the uh, the ability to both develop a, a level of expertise in something, as well as remaining a perpetual student, to be really uh, very appealing. You know, and and somewhere in there, there's probably the fact that when I was growing up, I bounced between France and the United States, and when I was in Paris, I tried to exp- I had to explain America to my French friends, and when I was in Vermont, I had to explain the world to them. And, um, and so, you know, somewhere there's that feeling of like, I think I helped this person understand this thing better, you know, Mm. in the case of politics, maybe I helped this voter to understand things a little bit better. You know, I I don't care how they end up voting, but if they under this, understand this thing a little bit better than I've, then I, it's rewarding. I couldn't go into teaching because both my parents were teachers, professors, and I would never have been as good as either of them. Um, so this is sort of like, uh, this is like a consolation prize. <laughs> you know, you know, I, I, uh, I spoke with, um, Adam class Klasfeld um, a few weeks ago from, um, well, no longer courthouse news law, law and crime. And I was asking him pretty much the same question. I asked him, you know, like what, what is it about journalism that really just kind of keeps you, keeps you going. And, and he, he said something that I'll never forget where he talked about, he was covering a, uh, a Turkish kind of like, um, fraud case and whatnot. And, and in Turkey, they are, um, you know, they've got like a media blackout and, and he was, he was basically just like tweeting and reporting on the story. And, um, he noticed that he was getting a lot of replies back on Twitter that were in Turkish. And, um, so he had to like use, you know, Google translate or whatever. And, and basically what, what people were tweeting back to him was like, thank you. Thank you. We don't know what the heck's going on, you know? And, and like, you're giving us information that we can't really get here. <laughs> and, and he said it basically just kind of like, you know, like gave him the motivation to just keep on reporting. And I, and I just, I'll never forget that because in my mind, I just think like the work that you guys do is, is so important. And, you know, it's so sad that, you know, the, the, the work you guys do gets vilified by everybody you know, I, I'd imagine it's gotta be like a, it's gotta be like a teacher probably Olivier, like the most thankless job in the world. Right. Like, like you, you, you think you're doing something good, but, but like nobody really likes you, you know, like, <laughs> like, like the, the people you're writing about, the people that are reading it, you know, <laughs> like so, your mom yeah. likes you most of the time. Right. Right. You know, the, the famous line is if, if your mother says she, she loves you, get a second source. Uh, but the, um, <laughs> No, I mean, I just tell myself, I tell myself that no one has ever fired up the comments section to say, well, that was a perfectly adequate story. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I completely agree. 
Yeah. Now, now, when, when both of you guys got into journalism, you guys um, got in before kind of the age of the internet. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing. Um, so, you like, how... smoke in the newsroom. I'm that old. Oh, really? <laughs> so, 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 how? I mean, like, how, how has, how has it changed over the years? You know, I, I was, I was um, looking at um, some information earlier today, just about kind of like the anatomy of the news cycle. And, and they had a lot of like really great graphs and charts and, and it showed, you know, like at the beginning, you know, a story would go to print person to read it, but then like interest in it would go way down, you know, but kind of with the advent of uh, television media, then social media, stories tend to stay alive a lot longer. So like, like how, how has news kind of changed over the years since you guys have been doing it? Well, it's gotten faster, but I wouldn't, I don't think it's gotten better. You know, uh, the rush to turn around stories just, I think, leads to a lot of mistakes. I notice a lot more mistakes. I make more mistakes now because everything is like rush, rush, rush. And I'm not necessarily nostalgic for the good old days when deadline was 9 p.m. and like not that, but it's gotten faster. It's gotten more fractured than it used to be. Uh, News has less authority, obviously, but I just I just don't think we're serving people in the way that they need. And, and you see so much media illiteracy, people just believing any crap that they read online. And uh, and people struggle with ideas for how to fix it. You know, these top-down ideas, should there be government regulation? Should Facebook regulate? And, and I know, I just wish there was a way for individual Americans to become just smarter about the news they read. And, and I feel like the internet and the speeded up news cycle has really aided that. I wonder what Olivier thinks. Hmm. Yeah, Olivier. What do you think? Well, I think I let me start by saying that when um, when I was starting out, uh, print print reporters like Julie could swan into the filing center close to deadline time, <laughs> and I'd been there for ten hours filing nonstop. Uh, oh, I think, I think I? for yeah. me, right? For me, what what's funny is everyone's a wire now. Everyone's in everything now, right? Every like the Washington Post, where I work now sends out news alerts that very much resemble what I used to send out when I was at AFP, um, you know, when I'm in the dinosaurs, uh, dinosaur era, um, mm-hmm. but also do digital video, right? And also do podcasts. And that's true of a lot of, if you go to CNN right now, sure, you'll get video, but there are plenty of pieces that are only print. They're only words, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's been this, in, in addition to the acceleration, there's been this diversification inside most newsrooms, not all of them, but most newsrooms where you now do, there's not just a print aspect, not just a photo aspect, not just a video. You've got a much more blended, um, blended product. So acceleration, diversification. And the third trend that I want to highlight, because it's really important to me is the, um, the absolute devastation of local and regional news, Mm. Um, which I keep trying to explain to people, unless you think the largest employer in your county uh, will never, ever, ever, ever do anything bad unless you think that your mayor or your state legislature will never, ever, 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 ever do anything bad and always has your best interests at heart. Um, unless you believe those things, you want a good local and regional reporting structure. And we are losing that. And at a time when some forces in politics are ignoring the U.S. Congress in favor of going st- methodically state by state, to get their will through state legislatures, it's really bad that we have, you know, there are some state houses where we don't have a reporter anymore. We, meaning the news media. Um, so those are the things that I would probably highlight. 
Yeah, totally agree with Olivier on local news. I came up through local news and it was so important to the community to just cover like every tax increase, all like how they were spending tax money. It's so important and all the graft and corruption. I mean, it's really overwhelming. And uh, to, to just lose those eyes and ears on that is, is, a, is just a terrible disservice. But people want their news for free. And that, that's part of the problem because of the internet now. People are used to it. They don't want to pay for it. They don't want to pay for a local newspaper subscription or they, they don't like their local paper. And so they die. The newspapers die. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, Josh Bertram here, faithful host of the Faithful Politics Podcast. I want to let you know about a compelling new spinoff, the Faith Roundtable where I'll be interviewing top faith leaders, theologians, and scholars to unpack the pressing issues that are shaping the church in America today. We'll dive into topics like faith and public life, social justice, and how we can engage our communities more effectively. Make sure you don't miss any of our enlightening conversations by subscribing to it on our YouTube channel. Join me at the Faith Roundtable, where deep discussion meets thoughtful insight. Yeah, you know, I, I the the first time I ever paid for news was actually um, when you 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 did almost kind of like one of those like NPR fundraiser type things, but it like it was compressed in like twenty seconds, and you said something. You 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 gave a, a similar pitch just like that. And I remember that night thinking, I don't have like five bucks to to spend a month, you know, like I'm I'm telling myself this, you know, (laughs) but like, but I did, I ended up subscribing. I won't tell you which, which publication, because I don't want to offend Olivier, but, but like (laughs) I, I, I did, I, I went in and subscribe and then I started to like read that one specifically because I'm like, I'm gonna get my money's worth, you know, (laughs) I'm going to read everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's five bucks. Thank you you for doing that. But then... Yeah, the 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 five dollars turned into like ten dollars a month because I started to kind of see the value and and um for me like a, a lot of the the bigger news sources like Washington Post and others like have really awesome graphics um and just um interactivity with some of their um like in depth journalism that I really really enjoy and you know I I I I agree I think that you know more people should probably pay for their news but unfortunately today most people think that all news is fake you know so like so how do you like how do you how do you swim in a sea of opinion and thought you know when everybody thinks that all news is fake and it's only true if if they if they agree with it there's nothing there's like nothing we can do about that except just keep doing your job and doing a really credible solid like the best job you can I, I don't, you can't go to people's houses and make them read what's true. Like you, if there, people have a right to be stupid. It's unfortunate. I, I just, yeah. I mean, what you say is true. Uh, it just is never, the criticism of the news media never ends. Most of it is pretty dumb, but you just keep doing your job for the people who, who want the information, I guess. If there's a better solution, I'd like to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Can, can you, can you solve this problem, Olivier? <laughs> well, I want to highlight your last point, right? Which is that that you are that what you said is you started out with by saying people say that all the news is fake. That's not right. Your final point was exactly on the money that people only believe something is true if it reinforces their beliefs, mm-hmm. right? Those are different concepts. 
you know, the same person who calls Washington Post fake news on Monday, if they get something, if they see an article they like on Wednesday, will blast it out to all their Facebook friends <laughs> at the retirement community. And, and will, um, I mean, really who's on Facebook, but, uh, but so, um, so they, so it's not, it's more complicated. It's more complicated than just a blanket mistrust or distrust of yeah. news because they, they're selective about it. You know, um, in fact, um, you know, the, and, and I, I made that joke about the comments earlier, but that's, that, that it kind of goes back to that where you'll see people who are like, this is perfect, one lovely and wonderful. And it, you know, I've been right about this for years, or this is horrible and hateful and this is fake news. And, and I don't know how you, I don't really know how you overcome it. Although I will say that in my own little world, I have found that replying to someone by saying like, okay, what questions do you have? Tends to be helpful. And I did that. Um, I did that way back in, in Waco, Texas, Jules, um, when we used to go down there with George W. Bush and I would get, you know, I can't do the, I can't do the accent as well as, as you do, but it was, you know, the, the whole like, oh, you know, y'all are just, you know, you're, you're just, y'all are biased. I, don't, I, I don't believe you. <laughs> y'all don't believe you. Y'all just make it up. I don't take and y'all's paper any more. That's, that was the line I remember from you. Um, and I would just say like, oh, you know, let's do it. Well, where do you get your news? You know, and ask him a couple of questions. They'd be like, well, you know, what do you, Grudge. you know, what do you, what do you want to know about? Right. Which of course links out to all the major newspapers. Um, major aggregator. Yeah. Um, but so um, at, getting them to ask me questions, because a lot of them just don't, they don't really have no idea what we do. I'll give you just one, ex- I'll give you one about- example. I'll give you one example, which is really, it's actually this, this one's on us. This is our fault. Um, people who think that anonymous sources are unknown to us. <laughs> right. That's such a good I was going to ask you about anonymous that. sources. <laughs> so, so I've, I'm ser- I'm dead serious. I've, I've run into dozens of people who think that the news, you know, was, was, was dropped like an orphan in a basket in front of the newsroom. And that, you know, that we're just quoting, you know, we're quoting ghosts that we have Random no idea callers. who these people are. Right, exactly. That, that, that we have no idea who these people are, but that, I mean, but that's on us. I think. I think we should be much better about explaining that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't really know how reporting works, and that's, you know, that's not a that's not a slam. I don't really know how veterinarians work. You know, I don't know how doctors work. Honestly, um, I could never be a mechanic. So, like, yes, walk me through what you do. Same problem with us. Hmm. Yeah, so, you know. It- Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. Just 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 real, real fast. Um, this is one of the reasons I really want to talk to you guys, because I, I, I wanted for you guys to kind of help explain to our audience, like how the news media works, because I mean, who else who 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 better to ask than people who work in the media um, versus me asking like my neighbor down the street, who's actually a really fine person, but they don't know that that much about like the media. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, go, go ahead, Josh. No, I mean, like I, you know, you face the same um I face similar uh, pressures just as like a, like a pastor, if I'm coming up with a sermon or something like that, and people just assume that, you know, they could come and uh, just say whatever they wanted to when they got up there and it would be, uh, it would be great. And there's no preparation involved. There's no process involved. And of course that isn't true. And there's a, there's quite a process involved And in what I, I had a question about the, um, uh, about where, this idea of fake news in your mind was coming, but I, but I think jumping back on what we just talked about with um, this process of especially anonymous sources, because I'll notice that I, I have subscriptions to Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and um, 
and New York Times and The Economist right now. I have way too many subscriptions, <laughs> I think, right now. Um, uh, but um, And my dad has been a serious XM subscriber for years. So, you know, we're, this is all good. So maybe we can start whoever wants to jump in and talk about it. When we talk in an anonymous source, what's the process behind that? What what do we need to know or what you as reporters and as journalists feel like we don't know, the regular public, that we need to know to understand what's happening there? Uh, well, we know who the, our sources are. <laughs> and there's usually a, a pre-existing relationship. I mean, every time I've quoted someone anonymously, it's been someone I already knew and had worked with a bunch of times and like knew where they were coming from and was a trusted source. They weren't going to, and there used to be a lot more rules about anonymous sources. And and this has been an evolving art in journalism. It used to be, you never let an anonymous source cast an aspersion on someone else or make an accusation without putting their name behind it. Like you could never use an anonymous source that way, but that kind of like went away. And, uh, and, and, and usually in my experience, I would always tell my editors who my anonymous sources were like person A, B, C, D was this person, that person, that person. They also have to have faith in your work, but not all reporters do that at all. So there's no hard and fast rules about these things. It's very, very, um, depends on where you work. Olivia, you deal with a lot of anonymous sources. I can't really do that in radio anymore. Like with like a of like a, one of those voice reporters <laughs> and stuff. But it would be like yeah, you know, <laughs> anonymous <laughs> guest. <laughs> well, let me say I, I I agree completely that there's been a, an erosion of what used to be some pretty good guidelines for who could use an anonymous source and when and why. Um, when I started out, um, I couldn't use any anonymous sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and that changed over time. Um, and I had to be, I didn't have to tell my editor, but I had to be prepared to tell my editor. Like if my editor saw my piece and, you know, came out and said, who, who is that? You know, then I would, I would have to be prepared to tell them who it was, but I didn't have to go into their office every time to report. Oh, by the way, I'm doing a thing on North Korea. The anonymous sources are the following people. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that it, it's supposed to begin with a negotiation. Um, you know, we have different, different levels of attribution. So on the record is, you know, uh, Sirius XM's Julie Mason, um, on background could be, uh, a Sirius XM employee <clears throat> or someone familiar with Julie Mason's thinking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Someone uh, familiar with Julie Mason's thinking said. <laughs> um, and there is also off the record where you it, it can inform your reporting, but you can't quote them or, you know, you can't say, but if, you know, an official told me X because they're off the record. So it's supposed to start with a negotiation. Um, although with some pre-existing relationships, um, I know, I know reporters, you know, some sources will say, I'm never talking to you on the record. Just every, anytime. Anytime I email you or text you or whatever, it's it's on background as a senior House Republican aide. Um, but we know who they are. Um, it, it is true that we used to not allow um, insults or aspersions and the like from anonymous sources. And then in 2004, the New York Times decided it was okay to quote an anonymous Bush aide saying that John Kerry, quote, looks French. And... Um, 
And that, and there was a lot of, I mean, it sounds dumb, but there was a fair amount of hand wringing in our profession about what they had just done. Mm. Um, so, um, so that's, that's, uh, and different outlets have different rules. You know, it's, it's kind of a free for all. Um, when I started out, Bloomberg couldn't quote anonymous people, but they could, they could include the content of the quote. No, it was like, like, you know, like you're, you're, you're on, you know, you're in the bar with Ari Fleischer and he says, okay, on background, um, that former George W. Bush spokesman on background, blah, blah, blah. And I could, by that point, I could say, blah, 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 a senior Bush aide said. But Bloomberg had to say, had to paraphrase and, and leave out the quotation marks. What I'm trying to get at here is, one, there has been a, an erosion of the rules. Two, the rules actually are at individual outlets. Three, we know who these people are. Um, and in theory, we're supposed to balance out the value of the information with the cost of making them anonymous. The minute you quote an anonymous official, you are the reporter are shouldering the faith of the readers. It is you, it is your name and your re- reputation now. You know, I am vouching for the fact that this person is above board, exists, <laughs> um, <laughs> et cetera. And so that's a real that that could be, you know, that could be fraught. I mean, because the public doesn't know how this works. So you could be. You know, you expose yourself to charges of, you know, you made that person up or you're lying or whatever. Hmm. So, so, so it was a lot of that, the, the anonymous sources and what you just mentioned, you know, on background or, or what have you, like, is that, is that just sort of like just gentleman's handshake, you know, um, there's no formality to it. Um, it's just, okay, you understand, I understand like we're thumbs up we're, we're good to go it's it's just like that yeah but i mean it's it's mutually assured destruction if uh if i burned a source no one's gonna talk to me like word gets around you know that you outed some source got them in trouble that like people find out and it can really hurt your reporting and then they can or they could come back and say well you know you quoted me inaccurately i'm never going to talk to you again or you know it's just it's it, it can be very touchy very dicey that's why it's better to to have that pre-existing relationship to like have worked with them over time so that there's there aren't those, those kind of hurt feelings yeah. And, and the, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I forgot one really important dynamic, which is that um, the federal government wildly overuses um, anonymity. Um, the, uh, I know that Donald Trump railed against anonymous sources, but in his White House on a weekly basis, they would do briefings for hundreds of reporters that were conducted on condition that you not name the people involved. There was one incident in which Mark Pottinger, his top advisor on Asia, did a briefing for 100 reporters in the briefing room and probably another 250 reporters on the phone. And uh, Donald Trump didn't like the uh, the New York Times coverage. And so he accused the New York Times of making this person up. Said this person doesn't exist. Uh, it was a senior, quoted as a senior official, right? Um, and, um, and, and, Every administration I've covered has overused these background briefings. So there's a, a some I can't I, I can't put a percentage on it, but a a reasonably large quantity of the news reporting that you are reading that quotes anonymous senior officials. This is by design. This was not in a parking garage in the dead of night. This was right? in this was in the State Department briefing room. <laughs> no, and it reaches levels of absurdity when you call them and you say. 
what time is the event tomorrow? And they're like, well, it's at three o'clock, but that's off the record. It's a scheduling matter. That's hilarious. <laughs> so, so they'll actually have officials, and what they say is, okay, I'm going to brief you guys on this, but you can't tell anybody that it was me that did it. And, no, and say, Trump had identify to identify me as a senior administration official. I have the all-time worst story about that. Oh. All-time. Oh, do tell. So I went, I went on a, a Dick Cheney trip that took us to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And as we were flying out of Afghanistan, heading for, I believe, uh, Oman to rest for a couple of days, the uh, Cheney folks set up a, uh, a Q&A with the vice president. And they said, okay, but this is on background, you know, as a, as a senior official. And we fought as, as long as we fought for 20 minutes about this. Um, and finally just had to, you know, it was either this or not, not get to talk to him at all. And like the first words out of his mouth were the reason the president sent me to Pakistan. <laughs> kind and, of outing and, the, and the entire, the entire briefing was I, me, my, um, and so we, those of us on the plane tried to, tried to write around the pronouns but everyone, everyone back in DC just howled with laughter and was like, you know, this is this is Cheney, you know, Cheney is. Saying this. Um, so that was that was just that was a horrible experience, and obviously belongs in a satire of how the press operates. Yes, yeah, <laughs> that's so, that's so funny. Now, now, I, I have to ask you not not a not a Trump specific question, but but a, a Trump question in relation to the news cycle. And I and, and this this question came to me. I was listening to Michael Smirconov today, actually at nine nine thirty or whenever it was, and uh, they were talking about the the Ted Cruz thing going on. And uh, Smirconov had had made a, a comment about you know um, he would really give anything for the story just to be dead within twenty four hours. And if Trump were still in office like the story would be dead because there would just be something that would come up and then like all eyes would be on what the president just said, you know? Um, and, and that, that, that really kind of got me thinking, you know, does, did Trump have a significant effect on sort of like the life of a news story? Um, and like, and how does that compare to other administrations? Go ahead, Olivier. Um, yes, he had a very significant impact. He had a very significant impact. Um, at times, it, it was enormously disadvantageous to him because he was in a he was in a perfectly fine news cycle. Democrats were on their heels. He was he was you know winning some legislative debate, and he would tweet out some something crazy, and all of a sudden we're 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 back on the you know oh here comes here comes Mr. Trump again. <laughs> um, but yes, he had a big he had a pretty big he had a pretty big impact. At least at the national level, he had a pretty big impact on um, what stories got covered and how long they got covered. Um, at least by political, I should say, by political reporters, and even there by a subset of political reporters. Um, mm -hmm. So yes, he had. I would say he had a pretty sizable impact. Um, you know, it's the president of the United States. He's got the nuclear codes. Um, he has almost unimaginable power over your life. I realize that the tweet might be unserious. <laughs> but it's not necessarily unimportant. I mean, he, this is a man who banned transgender Americans from military service in a tweet that was timed because that was the morning that the FBI raided Paul Manafort's house. 
Um, you know, he did that with a tweet. You can't, I, I, you know, I don't think I ever covered this, the insults. I never thought the insults were all that interesting, but there was some pretty big policy stuff going on, on North Korea, on Turkey, on the Middle East, you know, U.S. military posture, um, you know, that, yeah, I mean, right, personnel, he fired a bunch of people. Via, I mean, so I, you know, yes, he had a lot of control. Yes, there was a lot of dumb tweeting, but in the dumb tweeting, you, in the tweeting, you had to separate the wheat from the chaff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I so, agree with all that. <laughs> when he was tweeting something, so what you're, what, what I'm, I heard you say is that he um, would say something on a tweet and there wouldn't be an official document and then his staff would have to respond and create something from that? Yes, they would reverse engineer policy to match his tweets. And if they didn't... If no, we, that's not, well, that's really true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and sometimes we, there would be no paper. There would be no documentation of it. It would just be like, that's just the policy. Um, and, you know, and then it would, you know, be studied. Oh <laughs> it happened all the time. The withdrawal from Syria. The withdrawal from Syria. When there's a policy, when there's a new policy, they like, they, they workshop it to death. And there's, you know, it goes, like it goes around and around. And then it finally, like, it's like, you know, washed out, you know, and it just comes to you in this like anodyne nuggets, you know, but it's been like work and work. (laughs) Until it is almost meaningless and you receive it and then you then you have to like reverse engineer some meaning into it. But with the Trump administration, it was just it was all it was just it was just crazy all the time like that. (laughs) Yeah. So do you guys have like um, Trump withdrawal as like journalists? Like you're feeling the withdrawal from not having Trump. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Jim is having that (laughs) I don't. One of the things I've been one of the things I've been telling people I've been telling people that it's not, I mean, I, I, we've had some colleagues who, are, who, are, who have openly said that this is a boring time. And my response, and here I get to be all scoldy, Julie, ready? Um, <laughs> our colleagues who call this boring, and I'm just thinking, I'm terribly sorry. We have a, a global pandemic that's carried off nearly half a million Americans. We have tens of yeah. millions of Americans without work. Um, we have a, an accelerating uh, climate crisis. We have tense relations with Iran, which might decide any day now that actually they're going to build a nuclear weapon. If you find this boring, get out of journalism. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Good point. I'm sure that goes over well. Yeah, good, good, good point. Do they thank you for that correction? It does not. <laughs> no, no. Ingrates. Ingrates. Uh, now, now um, tr- Trump isn't necessarily like the only president that's had kind of a love-hate relationship with the media, right? I mean, other, or maybe that's a very sort of like shallow, like statement, you know, but, but all presidents love good coverage. They all hate. Kraken. You don't even know what's happening. You know, Olivia <laughs> so, and I so, are so on board with this. Wait, Obama wait. was the worst. He wait, are you Sidney Powell? He was he was <laughs> terrible on press. His uh, uh, I don't know where to begin, Olivia. Where even to begin? He would avoid from the, the press. beginning. It's here. Well, well, okay. Let's talk about using the Espionage Act to go against reporters and their sources. Uh, that was good. Surveilling the Associated Press, their uh, phone records. He got up on the Gmail of a Fox News reporter and the Fox News reporter's parents. He surveilled the Gmail, trying to trying to figure out who his sources were. Uh, J- James. Uh, Risen from the New York Times uh, refused to reveal Risen, yeah, Risen from the New York Times refused to reveal his source to the Justice Department, 
and was facing a prison term. He was so close to going to prison by dint of the Obama administration that he was already picking out the books he was going to read while he was in jail. And he had, he had thought that like, oh he told me that, you know, he had like his knowledge, he lacked a lot of knowledge about the civil war. So he'd picked out some very heavy tomes and was taking them into prison with him. And then like at the last minute, well, they backpedaled on that policy and decided not to send the New York times reporter to prison. And uh, his, and Obama's record on transparency was terrible. His record on FOIA was a wow. Master. He 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 avoided the press for months, but did like interviews with YouTube influencers, and they were like, "What? You got an interview?" It was like a lady with green lipstick in a bathtub, full of, you know, Fruit Loop, and not even joking. And uh, and 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 the, and but when you try to That's talk amazing. about it with Democrats, they're like, "Well, I'm sorry if he was rude to you, Julie, but he was really an excellent president." And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Well, he tried to throw girls in jail." <laughs> And he surveilled their email and their phone, but you know, I, I guess he was just sort of rude and off-putting. Uh, and uh, and I will climb down off this perch now. It's <laughs> Olivier, who that was amazing. Uh, it's uh, you no, know, it drives me crazy. And then people are like, "Well, Obama never did anything bad to the press," and it's like, "Cause you just woke <laughs> up when Trump was elected, and this is all new to you. We've been going through this for years. You know, we used to think Bush was like the last word and horrible." Right. But looking back on him, he should be getting awards for transparency. I mean, there were at least like briefing <laughs> access. You could ask him questions all day long and, you know, stuff like that. But whew, Obama was bad. Go ahead. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I can't I can't match that kind of righteous rage. I think that was, I, that was lovely. <laughs> I will add I will add that one 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 less dramatic than than say. Um, seizing the phone records of the Associated Press, including in bureaus where the offending reporters hadn't worked for years. Um, in addition to doing things like that, um, there was one really uh, toxic practice that they had, which was that they would exclude reporters from news events in order to, uh, quote unquote, cover them with their own photographer, their own videographer. They would produce their own content. Mm -hmm. So Right, I know that Democrats right, uh, love right. Pete Souza, but his fellow photographers loathed him um, because he would he would actively lobby to have photographers shut out of events so that he had the only photo. Wow! Um, right, you know and, they and, did and stuff. Um, because then he I, I would will... he would photograph Obama in these majestic poses that were beautiful, but they, they it wasn't news. <laughs> it was not news. I'm getting. I did notice that he always looked so good. Yeah. Maybe he had the same photographer Jing Jing Ping had. <laughs> well, but so that but that was a real that you know that was a real problem. That was a recurring fight between the White House Correspondents Association board and the press office. There um, was had to do with this this in house this constant production of in house um, propaganda. And I will, by the way, just I want to underline this again. Yes, he shunned reporters. And did an interview with a YouTube influencer, Glozell, who was best known for wearing green lipstick and bathing in a bathtub of milk and uh, I think it was either Lucky Charms or Fruit Loops. And I think um, at that time he'd gone some month oh, with a professor. And then he did he he had he'd been shunning the press for a while, and he did Between Two Fern, <laughs> right the mm -hmm. the comedy show with Zach Galifianakis. And I wrote about it at the time because um, it was a it was an effort to push Obamacare. Right. And I wasn't actually I wasn't fussed by it. Um, you, you know, I know that presidents have to go to where their audience is. I get it. But what got under my skin was 
in the briefing room, reporters were sort of poking and prodding at Jay Carney and saying, you know, when's he going to do a news interview? And Carney said, well, he just did an interview <laughs> did between two ferns. And so you can still find this. I mean, you, you can still find my um, my my rage piece um, about this, in which I said, rage. "Yeah, I, you know, it's like Obama's between two ferns wasn't in an interview, or you know, if you find do that and search for my name, because you know, and I and I went in at some length and said, look, it's a lot of things, right? It was really funny. Mm-hmm. It was a, a very clever play <laughs> for a digital audience to get them to sign up for Obamacare." Um, it was unusual. One thing it was not is an interview, unless you're White House Press Secretary Jay Carney. <laughs> um, but the, the in-house products were a real thing. And and in tw- in 2000 and in 2016, um, Hillary was doing um, a podcast where she was being interviewed by like a different staff member every week, and they bragged about that being the number one podcast in the country. And pretended that it was a news product, and 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 the barriers to entry are so low. Like any politician can do this, right? You know, I'm not going to talk to reporters, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put out a YouTube video. I'm not going to talk to reporters. I'm not yeah. won't take any right. I'm not. I won't take any questions. But my official photographer has this lovely photo of me. You know, um, <laughs> <I'm afraid> to <laughs> oh, yeah. Wow. It, it, it's almost like. You know, say what you will about Trump, but I, I always found Trump as like he was at least really accessible mm-hmm. um, and seemed as if, I mean, he would talk to any reporter, like um, whether it was a good week or a bad week. And I don't know if that's just a byproduct of him just thinking, you know, even bad coverage is good coverage kind of from his art of the deal like like mentality. But he always just seemed like he he made himself available even when people are like, no, he should not be in front of a camera right now. You know, yeah, he did. <laughs> and, uh, and, and reporters really love the access because you could just figure out like everything that was going on in his mind, what he was plotting, who he was mad at, what his mood was, everything it was like all just out there. And, you know, um, readers and listeners would say, you know, well, if all he does is lie and make stuff up, then what is the value? But there is value in, observing how they lie and make stuff up. Um, like, like there is uh, value. I had a white house press secretary on my show the other day and I asked her two questions and she just spoke and spoke, but didn't answer either one. And that in itself was a value. <laughs> it made me realize they don't know when the vaccine is going to be available and they don't know, like, I don't know, some other thing when we're going to be out of this. It's like, they don't know. And that was, the answer was embedded in the non-answer. So, you know, on the surface, right. it's not a very useful interview, but I learned some things. And that's the same with Trump. Like when yeah. he's lying, yeah. that's instructive too. Well, and also he's the president. So it's like, you can't not cover the president <laughs> regardless of what he's yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that, is that, is that, is that a safe, is that a, is that safe to say? Like, cause I think, I think you, you said it once in your show, um, Julie, you, you said that reporters jobs aren't, aren't supposed to be activists, you know, <laughs> like you're supposed to get the news and, um, like whether or not you like the person or not, you know, and what that person, like if Trump just punched an old lady crossing the street, you know, like you're not going to punish him by not covering that. <laughs> right. 
Right. And and I think there, you know, there was a story in the Washington Post recently by Paul Farhi about like smackdown journalism and how um that in this in this time of Trump, anchors, certain anchors really got into the habit of inviting people on the show to create a confrontation. And and they would just they would they would just, You're lying. Well, I'm shutting this down. And it became like very performance journalism. And no one learned anything. It had nothing to do with delivering information or even communication or even journalism. It was just it was performance. It was kabuki. It was ridiculous, but it became really popular. And now that's what listeners want. You know, I'll have like Ron Johnson on my show and they're like, well, you know, why didn't you? And it's like, well, cause I'm, I'm not here representing the DNC. Like I had him on cause I wanted to know his thinking. Cause he's clearly at least half crazy. So let's find out what he's thinking. But I didn't invite him <laughs> to be more C-Spanish than you know, CNN, but I just, I, there's no value added to that. It's like partisan tickles and that's it. <laughs> see Spanish. Yeah. You know, like, I had a like question about fake. Early, right. He's such a great anchor on, on C-SPAN and he comes off like this mortician and he doesn't change expression. He's just like, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, him in real life, he's so fun and he's like a lively, fun guy. He's got this great Irish that's personality funny. and you're like different guy. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when someone texts and they're like so totally different on text. They're like really bubbly on text. Then you meet them in real life and you're like, you have no personality. <laughs> and then on text, you're like yeah. the funnest person I've ever seen in my life. But like, but like reversed. Mm-hmm. So there's the pinnacle of fake news. I feel like, cause I would watch these press um, conferences for um, Trump. My favorite one, when you mentioned like having like in-house products is I, I mean, I'm sure you guys saw it. The one where he, uh, and maybe he did this more than once, but it's the only one I saw um, where he put up like this, like it was some kind of thing that was thrown together. It had to be in like five minutes or 10 minutes before. And it was just a bunch of pictures and videos. He's like, I'm not going to answer any questions. You guys just watch this. And it was like some ridiculous, I'll have to find it. It was like the stupidest <laughs> slideshow thing. And I'm like, I, he just, he was hilarious, but he just, I mean, he was many things. I thought he was funny sometimes. He also was a president. He shouldn't have said some of the things he did or many of the things. But when he would just say, oh, yeah, that's fake news or this and that, I felt like that was like this pinnacle of like this animosity of the conservative right towards this liberal left um, media, liberal like left media. Right. I put it in quotes because I understand that that's not the case um, necessarily. But so I'm like an ultra, like I'm, uh, I'm a pretty staunch conservative in many ways, but I'd watch this and I'd see this and it was just like, he would just like rail on this. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on like, what was that like? And then how has that evolution happened from this sense of like, like when did it become through your experience, like the, the, la- the, the, the media is left and they're fake. Like, when did that, how did that start? How did that evolve? How do we get where we are? It's always been there since I've been in journalism. Um, Trump, I mean, Trump in attacking the press was 
I mean, it was very clear. He was undermining the messenger. So when we reported something that he didn't like, he could just say, well, it's fake. They just made it up. And he just put that idea in so many people's heads. Um, he really, but, but he didn't start it. You know, it goes way back and the animosity, especially between the right and the news media has, has been there for so long. But I have to say, I had just as many problems with democratic politicians as well. Nobody likes the press. Nobody loves being held accountable. And also we're obnoxious and we're pushy and we chew gum and we don't sit like a lady and it's, you know, and it puts them like uh, on their guard, and, but they, you know, <laughs> But that, but at the same time, like you think of like, I mean, Olivier is a creature of Capitol Hill as well, and they need reporters, and you know they'll like they'll they'll bust an old lady's kneecaps getting to a journalist, and 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 so so they they need us as well. But uh, yeah, sometimes it's hard to navigate all that. But I just I just tune it down. I just I don't even care about it. I, I, I Olivier had, isn't it the same? It's just don't read the comments. Just you just have to tune out like the hate. I've muted so many people on Twitter. It's a wonder I follow anyone anymore. Um, I, I, I'll start by, I want the record to reflect that I do sit like a lady. Um, and um, <laughs> Noted. Uh, No, I think, so the answer to your question um, is Nixon. Um, Nixon's the first one who takes this to like the next level um, and, and ushers in the modern era of presidents, particularly Republican ones, um, sometimes actively campaigning against the media. Um, there was a bumper sticker in the George H.W. Bush campaign, annoy the media, reelect Bush. Um, but, but I think that the general consensus is that, is that um, Richard Nixon is where we get this as uh, not merely a mild recurring adversarial relationship, but an actual loathing for uh, the news media as part of your political ideology. Um, <clears throat> I... Um, I said a version of this in my White House Correspondents' Dinner speech, but I actually, I don't, I don't give Trump a pass on this. Um, it, it was different. He did unleash a very different kind of national loathing for the press, one that resulted in a torrent of abuse, mostly targeting women journalists um, in ways that I'd never seen before. Um, I had never received death threats prior to the Trump era. I did in the Trump era. Um, so I don't give him a pass on this at all. And I don't think that you can ignore it at all because this was a, this was a really different thing. You know, you can, you can look at the people at his rallies who are wearing rope tree journalists, some assembly required t-shirts. And, mm. you know, maybe you can dismiss that. But the tone from the top fundamentally changed the way one of the major parties interacts with, with journalists. Um, you know, this is the first time in my career that I had to tell my son, if you see a package on the stoop, just leave it. Wow. Um, because, and you know, and, and that sounds, maybe that sounds hyperbolic, but remember that guy who sent all those pipe bombs to Democrats mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. to, uh, media personalities. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I had, I had some, I had one person send me five single spaced six page type written letters from LA telling me that I was wrong, that Trump supporters were obsessive. Um, <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and that's the kind of thing you can, you can kind of shrug off, but I did have to refer a few people, you know, there were a few people that I had to refer up the chain to actual security folks in, in, in mm -hmm. New York. Um, and that's fundamentally different. I mean, I, again, what I said in my speech was I've been, I've been put physically pushed by press aides from both, from both parties. I've been called names by press aides from both parties. Uh, enemies of the people changed 
all of that. Um, and and while I I feel a certain amount of French pride in this in the fact that Robespierre, the French revolutionary figure, is the first person to say enemies of the people, um, <laughs> it changed. It fundamentally changed the way these people react. There's such a difference for me between fake news and enemies of the people. Such a gap there. One is attacking our trustworthiness. One is attacking our trustworthiness and our legitimacy to even exist. And um, and I thought I thought that was just very very different. Hmm. Wow. Now, now um, but don't how read do the you? Oh, don't, don't don't read the comments. <laughs> Got it. Check. Yeah. Um, now now what um like. What advice would you give to news consumers, you know, to become better, well, want to become better news consumers? Um, because there is a lot of different stuff out there. And I, and I remember we, we spoke to a, a lady, uh, Katya Vogt. Um, she works for Iraq International and she does all these media literacy trainings and whatnot. And the majority of her work was in Ukraine. So like her, her job was to try to get the Ukrainian population to become very media literate, <laughs> you know, and, and in the background, obviously all the stuff going on there. And, and I remember her saying, you know, that bad news travels faster than like good news or, or gossipy news travels faster than, than, than truth, you know? And I, I don't know how much different that is there as it is here. So like, what, what advice would you give to, to someone that, that says, okay, you know, I really want to be a, a responsible media consumer. Like how, how would that person do that? Well, you, <clears throat> you'd have to start with a varied media diet. Don't just get your news from one source. Don't get it off Facebook or social media even, but go directly to the source of news. And there are trusted sources of news. If, if someone is coming at that question from a, I want really good, reliable news, but newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times are too liberal. Like, I don't know where to go with that. Th those are some of the papers doing the greatest news reporting <laughs> in America. <clears throat> but as Olivier would say, you also have to go local and you have to like support local news. as well. So, you know, a diverse media diet is a really, really good start. Olivier, what would you add to that? I have two, two things I tell people when I do career day at my kid's school, I say, I ask the kids, raise your hand if you have a, uh, a friend who exaggerates a lot and usually they all put up their hands. Right. And then I say, uh, okay, well my exaggerating friend is the federal government. <laughs> and, That's and, and, and I'm your exaggerating friend. So it's fine. And it's appropriate to be skeptical, to read skeptically, not dismissively, but read skeptically. You know, I, I would never in a million years hold it against someone for saying like, I, I understand this is important, but it's all anonymous. I get it. I totally get it. Um, so I would say, read, you know, it's fine to, it's fine to see us as that friend of yours who is entertaining. You know, sometimes you get the sense that the story is not quite how it actually happened. Um, but so read skeptically, you know, I don't want you to, I don't want you to buy what we're, what we're selling hook, line and sinker. It's, it's, it's healthy to look at something because for one thing, it's the first draft of history, right? Stories evolve. They're not always That's right from point. the get-go. <clears throat> That's the first one. The second thing I would say is, if you can, try to be more skeptical of information that reinforces your beliefs than, than information that challenges your beliefs. That's good. Um, because too many people mash the retweet button because, because, they, because it's something that they agree with. Oh, my God. 
um, you know, Ted Cruz said something about, you know, he would do X only when Texas froze over. Well, no, that's not true. So and it did more, freeze over. Right. But that, that was the point that the, the fake the fake tweet was meant to get him in trouble because of that. So be more skeptical of stuff that reinforces your views than stuff that challenges your views. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself in a whole in a whole heap of trouble. Yeah. Now, um, just uh, one last question I have, and it's more process based. Um, like you, you mentioned the White House Correspondents Association. Can you explain what what that is and what they do? So it is an elected elected board of nine members, and basically the job of the uh, of the board is to negotiate with the White House on behalf of the men and women who cover the president and the presidency. Um, you know when when a, when a, when, a, and when an American president makes a public statement on a tarmac in Japan, that didn't just happen, right? You got to see it or read about it because there were people tra- there were members of the press traveling with the president. They had their equipment. They had the electricity needed to power the equipment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the WHCA makes a couple of different arguments to any White House. One is we want to see we want to see and hear the president at work as often as possible. We want as many opportunities to ask the president questions as possible. Um, and um, and beyond the principled transparency argument, there is the logistical argument. Uh, one of them. This is a bit of a of an outlier, but. When the president of the United States makes an unannounced trip to Iraq or Afghanistan, the WHCA has been working with them for a while to make sure that the people who are going on that trip will be reasonably safe, will have uh, the right equipment, the right support on the ground, um, and the ability to file their video piece, audio piece, print piece, photo piece, or what have you. So it is it is on the one hand um, committed to pressuring the presidency to be transparent and committed to making sure that the men and women who cover the, the, the president and the presidency will have um, the opportunities and the ability to do their jobs. Mm, wow. And, and my, my last question for, for you, Julie, and I think Josh had one more question is, is what, what, why, uh, why do you hate millennials so much? <laughs> uh, Cause like for me, like, I'm gonna, like <laughs> in my life, like what I'm thinking, I'm just like obsessed. <laughs> all right, you guys. So, I just, and they like run the culture. <laughs> All right, uh, Josh. <laughs> Josh, you're I'm not sure. Mine's a little too serious to come off that one. Close to the bone, or <laughs> no? I was just gonna say, um, what, what, what is it that? So, so the whole reason Will and I are doing this, and so we're very on very different political ends of the spectrum, and yet we're both Christians, so we share this kind of value set, and yet we both have, um, you know, pretty pretty diverse opinions when it comes to um, politics. What, what's your hope for kind of the future for the next four years, next eight years, whatever it is? What's your hope? Um, for uh, just just our country when it comes to media or, or, you know, and maybe if you didn't want to focus on media, that's fine. But what's your what's your hope as we move forward and what are you optimistic about? Well, I would anything. certainly hope that we, we could get back to a place where we agree on the same set of facts, but disagree about what the solutions are and, and, and how to get where we want to go. That seems like 
a really important goal to have because now I just feel like we're off operating from just completely different sets of like reality. And I think that's just terrible for this country. I don't know how to fix it, but, but I think that would be really important. I mean, all this unity talk and all that, I don't know. That's something politicians say. Um, I think there need to be real reforms in our political system. Um, starting with how we vote and gerrymandering and money in politics and some sort of incentive to get more people to participate in voting, especially in the primaries. So we don't get these extremes from both parties and end up with these, these governments that don't do anything. And all they do is fight and try to own each other. And like, it's just, it's, just, it's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous mm-hmm. state of affairs. So my hope would really be that we could move away from that. Um, maybe it's a silly hope, but, but I, I just think we'd be so much better off as a country. Uh, I, I hope to executive produce a TV show called, and another thing with Julie Mason. (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, I, I, the scope of that question is so broad and so difficult. Let me zero in on one thing I would like for some incredibly creative, imaginative expert in finance to come up with a reliable long-term way to make local and regional news viable. Mm. There are a lot of experiments. There are a lot of experiments out there. And um, I read, I, I, I was born in Vermont. I read Seven Days Vermont. I read Vermont Digger. These are two sites that are doing inventive work and they, they, they do it um, with inventive funding and they tell some really important stories. Um, if you're interested, start with Kate O'Neill's series on the opioid crisis in Vermont, in seven days, Vermont, it'll blow your mind. Um, and I would like for someone to come up with, again, a, a, a viable uh, plan, blueprint for, um, for uh, uh, keeping local and regional news viable. I, I just, you know, you've seen some experiments, Salt Lake Tribune going nonprofit, right? Texas um, the LA Tribune. Times. Mm-hmm. Texas Tribune is a great example. That's mm-hmm. a great example of a great, state, local uh, outlet, you know, the, the Nevada Indie run by uh, John Ralston. So there are some, there's some inventive stuff going on out there, but it would really, it would make, I think a, a just a, a huge impact for the good. If in, in the next four to eight years, someone says, wait, we've been going about this all wrong. And suddenly comes up with a way of, of frankly resuscitating mm-hmm. and, um, and, and bringing back to full health, a, a local and regional media ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you both enough for, for spending some time with Josh and I, um, this has been extremely educational and, and, um, you know, your guys's combined experience, um, I think is going to be a great value for our listeners. So thank you so much. And, uh, you know, well, I'll I'll continue to be listening to you, uh, Julie Mason, in the mornings, <laughs> and Olivier. I'll be reading your daily two hundred two. Yeah, so. I read it yesterday. I plan to read it today. Great. Thanks so much for the invite. It was a fun conversation. Yeah, no problem, guys. And uh, yeah, you guys be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks. You too. Thanks very much. All right. Thank you. you.